following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The message today is entitled Walking in Love. Love is a decision. It has emotion, and those emotions are very important. But love is not, first of all, an emotion. It's a decision. It's about what I'm going to do. It's about how I'm going to operate. The call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to love. Today, many are ruled by opinions or traditions, or cultural understandings. The gospel of Jesus calls us to leave behind our opinions, to leave behind our traditions, to act in a whole new way where we choose to open our hearts to understand that what makes us comfortable will not save us. And as Americans, we have invested almost all that we have in an attempt to be comfortable and then to operate within our opinions and what we choose to believe, even though it may not be the truth. The proverbial man who puts his head in the sand like an ostrich not wanting to know anything different than what I know. In the book of Jeremiah, we have a, of a man who was of royal descent, a part of the royal family. He was called as a prophet to speak God's word to the children of Israel because in their prosperity, they had become exceedingly wealthy and comfortable. The temple services were being carried on. The traditions were moving forward. But the Lord God of heaven was very, very angry with the children of Israel because of what they were doing in their private lives, because of what they were holding to in their private world. Jeremiah began to preach a confrontational message that said, you have to return back to the God of your fathers, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you must cut off the worldly connections that you have established that allow you to live in a dream world. He preached for 23 years. Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, For 23 years, it says in verse 3, The word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. It reminds me of the has-been nation of Greece. I say has-been because there's no longer a sovereign nation for the Greek people. They've been taken over by the Euro, by the IMF, by the World Bank. Month after month after month, the mainstream news in America said that the banks would close in Greece. the thoughtful people immediately began to move their money out of the Greek banks. They transferred it to Switzerland or to other sovereign nations where they would be secure. But then one day, the totally unbelieved, totally unthinkable to many people happened in spite of all the warnings they'd had. They had not believed it was possible that their banks could close. 
but the Greek banks did close just a few weeks ago. Riots in the streets. A sovereign nation voted not to buy into the whole World Bank proposal. The leaders betrayed their people. The banks closed. Many are saying that much of the deposited money in those banks will now be taken to pay the bankers. And the majority of the money given in the new loans that are going to be made will not go to the Greek people. It'll go to the bankers. How is it that the warnings could be so clear to the Greek people that they would be reduced to going to the bank once a week and pulling out the small amount they are allowed? How is that possible for an intelligent people? And would any of us argue that the Greek people with the very foundation of democracy. That's where it all started. They have always been renowned for their culture, for their wisdom, for their understanding, and now suddenly they can't believe that their banks are closed and they're losing almost everything. You understand in the United States of America, when you take your paycheck and you deposit that in your bank, that money is no longer considered your money. That money is considered a loan to the bank. And if that bank were to collapse, you could not go and take your money out Because first the bondholders have to be paid. The derivatives have to be paid. And what will be left? You who put your money in their bank. What I'm saying is not off the record. The U.S. government just recently, thank you, passed the law allowing this to happen, even in American banks. I'm raising this issue to say this is what the children of Israel were faced with. Jeremiah came and preached for 23 years saying, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies are going to sweep in And they are going to take you captive. They are going to burn Jerusalem. They are going to destroy your nation. 23 years. And they laughed at him. They said it will never happen. It's impossible. And Babylon came and took captive the brightest. And... Judah agreed that they would pay duty, taxes, to the government of Nebuchadnezzar. And then they went back to their good times. And they said, we're free and clear. See, Jeremiah, you're a fool. How can you preach such lies? And they all had their wonderful opinions. Do you know what my opinion is worth? just exactly what you've paid for it. Zero. Our opinions don't count. Truth counts. And Jeremiah was not coming and sharing his opinions. He was coming and sharing the word of God. And he was saying, this is what will happen. Just as the Greeks were warned, this is what will happen. They would not believe it. And so they would not prepare. They were ruled by their emotions, 
by their beliefs, by their opinions. But they were not based on reality. But they swore they were reality. And after 23 years of preaching, finally Jeremiah said this to them. This is verse 5, chapter 25. Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land and that the Lord gave to you and your fathers. You can stay in it forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with your, what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of a lamp, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And if you will simply go back in secular history, you will find that that is exactly what happened. For 70 years, the children of Israel were under the total bondage of the Babylonian government. Now turn with me, please, to the book of Romans. And I want you to see what this means today, especially for those of you who are being baptized today. In the eighth chapter of Romans. We'll begin with verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Now, what you're going to see very plainly here is that there are two paths. Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, published in 1672, has been in continuous publication from that date until today, wrote it while he was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. He talks about the one path, the narrow path. And then he speaks about many other paths that lead off of that path. And all of those paths lead people into destruction. Some of them look much more accommodating, much more attractive, the narrow path, and he asked the gatekeeper, how will I know which path is the right path and which path will lead me to the celestial city and which paths will lead me into destruction? The gatekeeper said, you will always know the path to take because the right path is the straight path. The wrong path is the crooked path. Well, it is the most famous allegory in the Christian language. He was right. He was writing out of the Scriptures. There is the natural desire of the human heart, and there is the natural desire of a redeemed heart. And they are two very different paths. 
One is a path where you follow your own inclinations, you follow your own traditions, you follow your own desires, and it leads you into loneliness and isolation and death. The straight path brings into your life people who walk with you, who encourage you, who strengthen you, who do not use you, but bless you. It's not an easy path, but it's an honest path. The writer, the Apostle Paul, is speaking about these two paths. Verse 5, this is chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now what makes this a little confusing is that when I follow the path of the natural desire, I simply am following my own heart. When I am following the narrow path, I am no longer following my own heart. I am following the heart of God. I am following the Holy Spirit. A pagan man said to me, Why are you always reading the Scriptures, Ray? Every time I see you, you are reading the Scriptures. My answer was simple, because I no longer desire to follow the inner leading of my own heart. I desire instead to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And He speaks to me as I read the Scriptures. He does not speak to me and give me direction as I watch a television or as I go to plays, as I go to the Kennedy Center and watch the entertainment. The Holy Spirit is not present in all of that. I'm not saying it's wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil has both good and evil in it. And you can choose the History Channel for as much as you want, but the History Channel will never take you to salvation. It'll never take you to Jesus Christ. It'll never cause you to repent of your sin. It will never lift you into the presence of God. So we have to make very clear decisions about who are we following and what is it we want. Some of you have times caught the car fever. Or you've caught the clothing fever. Or you've caught the new house fever or you've caught the new job fever. There are many different kinds of fevers that can catch us. All of them are not bad, per se, but none of the fevers of the flesh will take us to the God. Instead, they will divert us from the path of heaven. He goes on. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The word peace here means much more than just absence of conflict. In the Greek or in the Hebrew, it's shalom. It means all provision. Everything is given. So life in the Spirit is not a life of poverty. It is a life of abundance. It is a life being blessed in the Spirit, knowing that we are entering into fullness of life. The sinful mind, verse 7, is hostile to God. If you hear what I'm speaking to you today, and a part of your heart rises up and says, you got to be kidding me, Pastor. I don't believe what you're saying. I understand exactly where you're coming from. The sinful mind is hostile to God and to the Word of God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God desires to live in you. And you have to make a choice. Do you want the Spirit of God to live in you? 
Or do you want to go by what your own spirit desires? And believe me, the human spirit can be extremely religious. The Jewish people were very religious people. But the Babylonians still came and took them away. To be honest with you, in that sense of religion, I hate religion. I don't want religion. I don't want the traditions of religion. I want Jesus Christ. I want the person of Jesus Christ. I want the Spirit of God. Listen, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, even if he is very, very religious. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So this transition from the spirit of death, from the human spirit, in transitioning over to the spirit of the living God, he brings life to our moral bodies. He begins to teach us what to eat, what not to eat. He begins to tell us, don't be gluttons. Jesus said, my body is real food. My blood is real drink. We begin to be satisfied, not by the flesh food, but by the spirit food. Now he continues, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I want to come back. I dealt with this on the radio this past week, but I want to deal with it again quickly. And then we have one more scripture we need to look at. In chapter 8, we'll begin with verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, that is, what the outward instruction regarding how we should behave, the outward demands not from inside, but from outside. The law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. In other words, somebody could tell me how I should behave. But I can tell you right now that if somebody told me how I should behave immediately and me rose up, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. A rebellious spirit would rise up. My dad tried to whip it out of me. He was unsuccessful. I know I'm grateful for my dad's punishment, but my dad's harsh treatment of the body of this little boy did not cause me to not be rebellious. It just said, be more careful about letting your rebellion be seen. (laughs) Be a little more clever in your lying. Be a little more clever in your, in your games. And so by the time I was an adult, I was a professional at getting my own way. When I began to follow Jesus, no longer was it outside of me. The Spirit of God came into me, and the Spirit of God began to say to me, this is what you should do. And the same rebellion did not rise up in my heart. Now watch. It says, the law was powerless because we were weak. We were rebellious. We were angry. So, it says, God dealt with it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. God did something because he saw that he would never be able to tell us what to do. 
and remove the rebellion in that way. He had to come up with another plan. And that plan was that Jesus would come. Now watch what he did. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. That's such a poor translation. That's not what the Greek says. In fact, sinful man is not even in the Greek. It's vital that you understand this. If Jesus came and condemned sin in sinful man, then Jesus came and did the same thing the law did, coming from the outside condemning me. Then Jesus and the law are the same. This translation cannot stand. The literal translation in the Greek is this. And so he condemned sin in flesh. Whose flesh? His flesh. So Jesus did not come to condemn us, as this NIV translates it. Instead, Jesus came to condemn in himself, in his flesh, the rule of sin over all men. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse that I just shared, as it's translated in the NIV, says just the opposite. It says, Jesus came to condemn sin in you. No, he didn't. Jesus came to remove sin because he killed it when he died on Calvary. Jesus was not a martyr. It was not what was done to Jesus that saves us. It's what Jesus did in his flesh that saves us. So please understand today, the law comes from the outside and condemns us and tries to force us to align with its commands. Jesus came and he did not condemn us. Instead, he condemned the sin through the death of his flesh. He became an atoning lamb of sacrifice in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit, according to what comes inside of us. Now, some of you struggle because you're still trying to live by what is said outside of you. You're supposed to do this, and you're supposed to do that, and you're not allowed to feel this, and you've got to go here. And, you go. and then the church comes in, and we say, you're supposed to read your Bible. You're supposed to fast. You're supposed to, you're supposed to, supposed to. Are you kidding me? We're not going to ever do what we're told from the outside. It has to be given to us on the inside And that's what the Spirit of God comes. And he comes and he says, would you come and meet with me and read this word? I want to love you. I want to teach you. Would you come and meet with me and talk with me because my heart's lonely for you. I want time with you. It's a whole different perspective. If I read the scriptures as thou shalt, everything in me is going to be stirred up to say, are you kidding me? I tried, I couldn't, I'm condemned, I'm gone, I'm history, I'm out of here. But that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is, will you let the Holy Spirit come and dwell in you? Will you agree with God? And that's what you who are being baptized today are doing. You are making a covenant agreement with God that you will let God do in your heart by the power of the Spirit what He wants to do in you. You are letting Him create in you Himself. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are going to give up the rebellion because no longer is the word coming from outside of you. Today, the Spirit of God enters into you. And He will tell you. I tried not to give away who did this, but one of you who are being baptized today suddenly came out with an explosive curse word in my presence. And I didn't say a word. I didn't need to say a word. This person turned their head away and said, Oh! (laughs) Something inside that person was saying, You just blew it big time. No condemnation from me. I mean, it's like the preacher who who was going out and helping a buddy unload crabs. And he was the picture of, you know, the godly man. And as he's unloading the crabs, one of those crabs grabbed his finger and pinched him, and the curse words just flew. Well, he confessed. He'd been resisting the Holy Spirit for a long time and was cursing, and suddenly his sin found him out. And all the guys working just burst into laughter. They almost rolled because here's this hyper-Christian man, self-righteous to the 10th degree, cursing like a sailor because his finger got pinched by the crab. Well, obviously this man was not listening to the inner direction of the Holy Spirit. He was putting on a religious outside cover. That's not what the Christian gospel's about. The Holy Spirit wants to come in and totally renovate the inside of our heart and change us and transform us. We are making today, as you are baptized, a covenant that you will allow Jesus to come into your life and by the power of His Spirit you will submit to everything He wants to do as He rips out this wall and that wall and changes this bathroom and this bedroom, as He transforms the inner part of your heart, there is going to be a full-scale renovation. It may even come to the point where you say, are you going to take the roof off too? Are you going to bulldoze the whole deal and just start with a new house? Frankly, it would be easier if Jesus just bulldozed the whole house and started all over. But he doesn't do that. He works with what he gets. When a person is baptized, they have not arrived. They're just beginning the journey. And that's not even really true because there was a journey that led you to decide to be baptized. There was kindness expressed. There were things said. There was a drawing by the Holy Spirit as he said, come and follow me. There were times when you were in desperate trouble and you prayed and said, oh God, if you'll get me out of here, I'll serve you as you clenched your eyes and your fists, and then you were saved, and you said, but not this time, Jesus. I got away with it this time. He saved me this time. Maybe it wasn't Jesus. Maybe it was just faith that saved me. And after you've played that game a few times with God, you finally have an inner conviction that says, if I play this game one more time, I'm toast. And something happens that finally says, look, you either follow Jesus or you're, you're done. And the renovation starts. With your permission. You understand the renovation started without your permission. And you would finally come to a point where you could say, I don't want this Jesus. I'm leaving. See, Jesus doesn't want robots. He could populate heaven with robots. He could program them to be loving and kind and generous. 
Jesus is not interested in robots any more than you guys are interested in a robotic wife or you gals are interested in a robotic husband. Sometimes it'd be easier if they'd be robots, right, guys? But they're not. They're full of life and spice, hopefully sugar. That's what God wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your personality. He loves who you are. He just wants to come in and renovate and get the termites out of your life. He wants to remove what will destroy you. So it's very clear in this 8th chapter of Romans that he condemns sin in his flesh, not in you, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So let's look at what some of this renovation is going to look like. You find it in the book of Ephesians, Let's look at what this renovation is going to look like. Now, you're going to have to be a volunteer to this renovation. You're going to have to allow Jesus to do this. The covenant you're making is that you are not going to change yourself. You are going to let God change you. Even when it feels like he's going to kill you if he goes any further. I don't know about you all, but there's one person in the world I would rather not go to, ever. And yet I'm there every six months. And that's the dentist. And all of you are blessed because you're young and you've never had to go to the dentist and have the old drill that is run by the, by the uh, bands. No, now we have air-powered, quick drills. I remember as a child sitting there, I had a very high fever. I almost died. And the fever pitted my teeth. And after I recovered, Mom took me to the dentist, and the dentist said, Oh, Raymond, I see we have some work to do. And I sat for hours with that old-fashioned, slow, grinding drill as he went into every one of those pits and filled them. And he would say, Hold on, Ray. It's almost done. Let's go one more time until I was ready to kill him. (laughs) You know what? Sometimes God has a very fast drill. But sometimes his drill is very slow. And he says, we've almost got it. Just sit still. We've almost got it. Let's go one more time. For some of you, this drilling has taken a number of years. I feel like I've been in the drill of God for the last 40 years, waiting on God to bring revival to the city of Washington. When I was a senior in high school, I walked into Washington, D.C., and the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he said, I'm assigning you Washington, D.C. It will be your place of service. And now for 45 years... I've labored in this city for Jesus Christ and felt the drill of being changed and molded that finally, when the time was right, I could preach a gospel of righteousness. 
What have you given your life to? Have you given your life to worldly concerns and success, or have you given your life to Jesus Christ? If you read the fourth chapter, verse 17, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This is not ignorance for lack of education. This is ignorance for hardening the heart against the work of God that he wants to do in your heart. Let me use a couple as an example. Husband does something wife doesn't like. Wife gets mad. Fight ensues. What's wrong with that picture? Isn't it a common picture? I mean, we guys, all we can do is hold our hands up and say, what do I do? It's her. It's all her. Hardening of our hearts. Claiming that we're right. Or claiming that we're innocent. Both equal in God's eyes. Takes two to tango. The call of God is for us to not harden our hearts against what the Holy Spirit would say to us. Hardening our hearts results in what is in verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. So husband says, Wife is always doing this. I've had couples married 30 years glaring at each other as they come in. And, and, and I say to them when they come in, why haven't you guys killed each other? Look how angry you are. What in the world is going on that would cause you to be so angry? Oh, pastor, he's been treating me like this for 40 years. These gray beards. I have one listener to the radio broadcast. When she calls, she sounds so holy. But her husband lives in one part of the house, and there's a mark in the house. He is not to cross that mark, and she doesn't cross into his area. They might as well have sawn the house in two and moved it to different geographic locations. I said to her, why aren't you guys either making peace or divorced? Well, it would cost us too much money to divorce, so we're not going to divorce. He plays around all he wants, but I serve Jesus. You you serve Jesus? You're awful mad to serve Jesus. Well, he's... See, it's a hardening of the heart. And I want to tell you today, as the Holy Spirit works in your life and in your heart, one of the primary issues, do not harden your heart against the word of the Lord to you. Don't lose your sensitivity. Don't lose your sense of humor. You know, laughter makes the sharp edges so they don't cut. Read all of chapter 4. It will talk very specifically. Chapter 5, it will speak very specifically about how Christians walk. But I, I want you, as you read through these chapters, don't see them as laws. 
see them as what the Holy Spirit is in the process of doing in your heart as he creates in you a new creature, as he brings forth in your life the joy of Jesus. The most serious issue of the day is whether or not we will say yes to Jesus to be controlled by his Holy Spirit or whether we are determined to go our own way to keep our grudges, to keep our hurts, to keep our bitterness, or to utterly open our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, come and rip out everything that needs ripped out and come and build in everything that needs to be built in. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I rejoice in you today. For you are the Lord, the Almighty. I ask that you would come in to every person willing to say yes to you, to lay aside our opinions and our beliefs, our our pains and our memories that we would lay aside everything that would stand against your word and against your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would have the victory. That it would be Christ in us, the hope of glory. In your holy name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory.